Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Howdy and what's up dogs, you are listening to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I cover six new-to-me horror movies followed by a spoopy topic seven. This episode we have creepy mannequins, your parents, and demon transformers among other great things like art that continues to haunt me to this day. You know I like to keep these intros short so everyone grab a shovel and let's dig up this grave of content. Number 1, Taurus Trap, 1979, directed by David Schmoller. A group of friends end up at an old tourist trap run by a man named Slauson, who we later find out is a psychonic loon with strange telekinetic powers. Slauson kills everyone except a girl named Molly, who he has a creepy eye for. Molly eventually gets an opening and kills Slauson. Our story ends as she drives away from the tourist trap with mannequin versions of her dead friends. Slauson is the killer. This movie is definitely one of the weirdest slashers I have ever seen. In the beginning of the movie, a character named Woody goes off to find a gas station after having some car troubles. When he arrives at the gas station, he is yelled at by mannequins that come to life. He is eventually killed with a metal pipe that goes from resting on the ground to flying through the air to impale him. This happens very early on, and from that point, you're never really sure what the hell is going on. Were the mannequins animatronic? Was there a super magnet that made the pipe fly through the air? Am I really watching a movie with a killer that has telekinetic powers, who can bring mannequins to life and turn people into mannequins? This movie actually has an insane old man with crazy powerful telekinesis as the bad guy. Slauson makes for one of the most interesting killers that's graced this podcast. Throughout the movie, he wears different creepy mannequin masks that I thought were made out of human flesh in the beginning of the movie. They technically might be, since he can turn flesh into wax. The masks are very unique and off-putting. While I think this movie has a ton of issues with pacing, and a lot of the kills don't really land, I actually found it to be very unsettling. The movie is littered with mannequins, which are incredibly freaky, especially when their jaws unhinge, allowing odd music, screams, and laughter to pour out of their mouths. Mannequins are inherently creepy, and this movie expands on their creepiness factor in the best possible way. Chuck Connors plays Slauson. I think he does a pretty great job. He gives a great friendly, but off performance, leading up to the reveal that he is indeed the crazed killer. Not only did Chuck have a 40-year film and television career, he also played in the MLB and NBA. Talk about not having all your eggs in one basket. The rest of the cast is pretty bad, barring Molly, the girl Slauson has a creepy eye for. Most of the kills in this are rather boring. 
a guy gets impaled by a pipe, a girl gets strangled by a scarf, and another girl gets a knife in the back. There are two interesting kills. A girl is tied to a table and Slauson makes a mask of her face without providing air holes for her to breathe, so she suffocates. Honestly, that kind of death is terrifying. Just stab me to death instead, please. The other interesting death is a little more out there. Slauson is about to be taken out by a guy named Jerry, who's wielding a hatchet. Before Jerry can make a move, Slauson turns him into a mannequin with his unexplained powers and just pops off his arm. He then pops off his head and smashes it. There isn't any blood during the kill since Jerry is mannequinized. The gore was not a strong point in this one. Stephen King is on record praising the movie, which makes a lot of sense. While I found some stuff in the movie to be pretty entertaining due to the visuals and pure what is going onery, Tourist Trap is still an incredibly slow ride. If you are a big fan of creepy mannequins, give it a watch. Otherwise, I'd say skip this one. Number 2, Halloween 1978, directed by John Carpenter. Before I start the summary, I know, I know. This guy has a horror movie podcast and hasn't seen Halloween until now. Well, yeah, I mean, I think. I might have seen the whole thing in pieces throughout my life, but I never sat down and gave my full attention to the original Halloween. I've seen a sequel here and there and saw the remakes in theaters since I was almost at every showing of every movie that came out during that time when I was younger, but at least I've finally watched it now. Michael Myers is a messed up kid who kills his sister. He is sent to an asylum, but escapes. His psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis, searches for Michael, who is back in his hometown of Haddonfield, stalking Laurie Strode, a babysitter played by Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends. Michael kills three of Laurie's friends. He then attempts to kill Laurie, but is stopped by Loomis, who unloads a revolver into Michael, causing him to fall off a balcony. The movie ends with Michael's body disappearing and the neighborhood being enveloped by his heavy breathing. Michael Myers is the killer. Does this movie live up to the hype? Honestly, I don't think it does. Halloween kicked off the slasher craze in the 80s, where each movie had to be more ridiculous than the next. So I have basically been watching all the crazy fallout that this movie caused. Going back and seeing the start of a genre where things that are now tropes were created, it is really hard to watch Halloween without comparing it to everything that has come out after. There are basically three movies that pioneered the modern slasher genre, Black Christmas, Halloween, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I find Halloween to be the weakest of the three. That's not to say that I think the movie is bad, I just don't think it's anything special. That said, Halloween is credited with the birth of the slasher's craze. It did give the killer an actual theme song, which wasn't really a thing in slashers. The Halloween theme is iconic. I'm trying to think of other slashers where you could play the theme and have anyone instantly recognize it, but can't really think of any besides A Nightmare on Elm Street. Sure, there were some cheeseball songs in slashers like the Maniac Comp Rap and all the terrible hair metal songs made for hair metal slashers like the 1980s Trick or Treat, but only diehard fans of those films would recognize those songs. Halloween also had a great actress for the final girl with Jamie Lee Curtis. She is also one of the first final girls to really fight back against the killer. I wasn't really a fan of the other performances in the movie, though. Halloween was made for $300,000 and grossed $70 million, which is probably one of the biggest reasons slashers started being pumped out. The horror genre seems to be the go-to for studios to make low-budget movies that will almost always turn a profit. 
Even though John Carpenter's theme for Halloween is iconic, the overall sound design and mixing of the film is not great. The sound quality is especially bad. A warning for all you pet lovers, a German Shepherd is killed by Michael Myers. A really strange thing is said in this movie that I want to assume was accidental. When the couple goes over to the house where Annie is supposed to be babysitting Lindsay, the boyfriend character tells his girlfriend he is going to tear her clothes off, then she'll tear his clothes off, and then they are going to tear off Lindsay's. As just stated, Lindsay is the very young girl that Annie is supposed to be babysitting, so either the boyfriend is a creepy pedophile, a guy making an unfunny joke about having sex with a child, or the line was delivered incorrectly and the guy was supposed to say Annie, which would still be a stupid thing to say. I'm not sure how it could have been an accident, since the error is completely obvious. Anyone on set should have realized that error. The girlfriend laughs it off too, which makes me believe the guy was supposed to say Annie. We get a ton of scenes from the point of view of Michael Myers, with his heavy breathing, which was an obvious influence on a film I'm going to cover in a little bit. I'm not the biggest fan of the POV killer shots, but they can sometimes be interesting. For example, in the Evil Dead series, you get ridiculous POV shots whenever the ancient evil powered by the Necronomicon is zooming to a location. At this point, I'm not sure what my overall opinion is on John Carpenter. I think the thing is absolutely incredible. His adaptation of Stephen King's Christine is pretty fun. Halloween is an average yet iconic film, and The Fog is bad. I'll have to check out some more stuff from him to form a final opinion. Halloween is a classic horror movie that any fans of the genre should see. While I personally don't love the movie, I still appreciate what it did for the horror genre. I will definitely be checking out the new Imagining from Danny McBride and David Gordon Green when it releases. Number 3, Mom and Dad, 2017, directed by Brian Taylor. Parents start trying to murder their children out of the blue. Parents are the killers. When I heard there was going to be a movie with Nicolas Cage where parents randomly start offing their offspring, I instantly decided I was going to buy a ticket when it got to theaters. I was looking at some movies on Amazon and was incredibly surprised to see Mom and Dad available to rent. I guess movie theaters found dead kids a little faux pas. I know that killing children has always been a very taboo thing in horror movies, but I think this movie actually does it in a very tasteful way. You don't see any kids explicitly murdered on screen. This movie leaves most of the brutal kills to your imagination. The only on-screen kill of a person under 18 is when a girl gets strangled by her mom. But she's your average teenage idiot we've seen die time and time again. All of the graphic underage deaths are only implied. We do see some older people die though. The gore that is shown is very well done. The boyfriend character named Damon's dad dies bloodily after accidentally slicing open his own neck during a fall, and Nicolas Cage ends up killing his parents with a car. That's right, Grandma and Grandpa come over for a visit and try to kill Nicolas Cage while he's also trying to kill his own kids. This movie is bonkers. It starts off with an amazing opening credit sequence that encapsulates a very 70s vibe. The whole film is shot very creatively and sans some drawing cuts during dialogue, I feel the camera work is awesome. There are odd angles, pans, and cuts throughout the movie which just heighten the hectic imagery on screen. The acting is a bit of a mixed bag. On one hand you have Selma Blair who is incredible in this. Seeing her made me want to go back and watch the Hellboy movies. 
On the other hand, you have Nicolas Cage, who goes full Cage crazy. But it completely works given the insane circumstances of this movie. Sure, he goes overboard in pretty much every scene he is in, but that only makes the film more enjoyable. It would be interesting to see another actor play the father, though, since a more straight actor might have made for a creepier take on the character. Seeing Nicolas Cage go bananas is kind of a given at this point. Cage said this is his favorite movie that he's filmed in 10 years, and it's obvious from his performance that he had a lot of fun with it. This movie does its best to try and make the viewer want to see the daughter, Carly, die. She is vicious to Selma Blair, who plays the mom, early on in the movie. The son isn't painted as a villain, though. The kids acted well enough. Robert T. Cunningham does a good job as the boyfriend, Damon, and Ann Winters is alright as the daughter, Carly. Lance Henriksen, who I always associate with Bishop from Aliens, plays Cage's dad and is hilarious when he pops up and just starts stabbing Cage. The music in this movie is all over the place. In the beginning, it kind of put me off, but it really grew on me as the movie progressed. It's hard to explain. There's a lot of juxtaposition with what's on screen and the music, and some of the music is just plain eerie and weird, with digital sounds added over top. There is a very ridiculous moment in this movie regarding a basement explosion that doesn't make any sense. One other thing that kind of made me instantly blurt out that wouldn't happen is when Selma Blair is flailing around a wire hanger and it goes right through Damon's cheek. Those two ideas must have sounded better on paper, I guess? Besides those small issues that can easily be looked past given the ridiculous nature of this movie, I highly recommend checking this movie out. It is a hyper-stylized horror comedy with a heaping serving of Nicolas Cage. If for some reason you hate Nicolas Cage, I'd skip this. Number 4, Tragedy Girls, 2017, directed by Tyler McIntyre. Sadie and Michaela are two girls trying to become social media whore icons by any means necessary. They kidnap a masked serial killer named Lowell and kill some people. A boy named Jordan comes between the best friends for a short period of time, but they reunite, kill Lowell, Jordan, and all the students that are attending prom. Sadie, Michaela, and Lowell are the killers. This is a fun movie about the strong bond of friendship between two sociopath biffles. It stars Brianna Hildebrand, who played Negasonic Teenage Warhead in Deadpool, and Alexandra Shipp, who played Storm in X-Men Apocalypse. They are both a joy to watch in this. They actually come off as two friends that just happen to have murderous tendencies in common. Seriously, how do you meet someone like this? Online forums? Armin Muse met a dude that was willing to let him cut off his ding-dong so they could both eat it on a forum in real life, so it's plausible. It's revealed that the girls knew each other from when they were kids and just happened to bond over killing Jordan's mom as youngsters. Speaking of Jordan, have you ever had a boner so big you were willing to look past the fact that the girl you have a crush on brutally murders people? Have you ever had a boner so big you were willing to look past that same crush admitting to murdering your own mom? I sure haven't. Jordan's character is the worst part of the movie. He's kind of supposed to be, though. He's the moral character that wedges himself between the friends. It's weird, though, because there doesn't seem to be any reason for Sadie to want to be with him for the hot second that she is, other than a cheap plot device. Craig Robinson randomly pops up in the middle of the movie as Big Al, 
the guy who rallies the town to find the serial killer who's allegedly been killing people, when in reality, Lowell is tied up in Sadie and Michaela are taking care of business. His time on screen is short-lived, though. Sadie and Michaela end up murdering him in ridiculous fashion. Speaking of ridiculous kills, there is a moment in this movie where the duo goes to kill a preppy girl that's been getting in their way. The preppy girl sees one of them dressed in all black with a mask on and isn't even phased, which is pretty funny. Then, after a brief scuffle, the preppy girl dies due to an insane chain of Rube Goldbergian events. Her death is incredibly outlandish in the best way. Unfortunately for the duo, the way the preppy girl dies looks like an accident. So they cut up her body to make sure people know some deranged killer did it. Obviously, this movie has a ton of gore in it. It is all done incredibly well and creatively. You get a ton of different deaths, all with tons of practical effects for the most part. I know they must have used some digital effects in places, but digital was used sparingly and in a way that actually works. I applaud the gore design in this movie. The soundtrack for this is also great. It has a nice mix of different modern pop songs that really fit with the aesthetic of the film. At the end of the movie, Michaela shoots Lowell in the forehead to save Sadie. Lowell is blamed for everything, so it's great for the girls that no one decided to do an autopsy on him. I guess it's possible that Michaela just said she shot him in self-defense, but that's never explicitly stated in the movie. This is definitely a film where you need to suspend your disbelief from the get-go. This is a very enjoyable movie. There aren't a ton of movies where the killers are the protagonists, so it feels nice and fresh whenever one is released. Check out Tragedy Girls. Number 5, The Ritual, 2017, directed by David Bruckner. A group of friends go hiking in Sweden as a send-off for their friend Rob that died after being attacked during a convenience store robbery. Luke was at the store and didn't do anything to help Rob. While out in the wilderness, one of the friends, Dom, hurts his leg like an idiot. This prompts the group's leader, Hutch, to lead the gang on a shortcut through the forest. Once in the forest, the gang finds a cabin, which they go in to avoid the rain. The cabin is creepy and there's a strange humanoid figure made of wood on the top floor. Everyone has strange nightmares. They then continue on through the forest, where Hutch and another person in the gang named Phil are picked off by a strange creature. Dom and Luke are captured by forest people who worship the creature. They feed Dom to the creature, and Luke gets away after burning down a room with creepy corpses, killing some worshippers, and getting out of the forest. Random thugs, Luke, and the creature are the killers. You can say the worshippers are killers too, but I feel that they were forced to sacrifice people to the horrifying creature. They don't technically do the killing. If a giant demon thing won't kill you if you let it eat someone, I bet you'll let it eat someone. This movie decides to show you the entire creature. Was it the correct decision? I want to say yes. At first I thought it would be better if you only saw quick glimpses of the thing, but after finally getting to see it, the design is just too good to keep obscured. There was only one thing I didn't love about the design of the giant deer human transformer demon, and that was the glowing yellow eyes that you see shining from under the hood of the human part. I think it would have been spookier without the cheesy eyes. The monster and other frightening things like the corpses in the final cabin all look amazing. It looks like there was a perfect blend of practical and CGI effects to create these demonic visuals. 
I especially loved the scene where Luke burns the corpses. They basically are just added out of nowhere and are a nice creepy surprise. The acting is incredible. The gore that is shown is also amazing. The craftsmanship of this movie is top-notch in almost all categories. I'm not a big fan of characters seeing weird visions, but I feel like this movie handles strange dream sequences and visions nicely. This is based on a book, and the main difference from what I've gathered is that in the book, instead of the worshippers, we get a metal band that is helping a lady to perform the rituals in order to become truly metal. I'm not sure if that would have worked on film, but I have always been interested in the Scandinavian metal scene, and I think it could have worked. Changing the metal band to weird forest worshippers is a much safer route, though. This movie did give me a heavy Blair Witch vibe early on. The original Blair Witch is one of my favorite horror movies for its simplicity and atmosphere. I haven't seen the sequel or the new one. If you think I should, let me know. Even after seeing all these horror movies where terrible things happen in forests, I still think cutting through a forest would be cool. I don't think I would ever go into a random cabin found while trekking through one though, since they are all apparently filled with evil. In the ritual, they go into the cabin because it's raining, but they are already soaked. In that situation, I think the best option is to keep on trudging along instead of taking a chance in a random cabin. I guess this movie would be considered folk horror since the monster seems to be loosely based on Nordic folklore. The worshippers say it is a bastard son of Loki, and they also say it's a Jotun, which is a vague Norse creature that could be anything. It translates to giant, but there's a lot more to it than that. I am definitely interested in seeing more horror movies starring monsters from other cultures. I just remembered skinwalkers are a thing, so scratch my earlier thought of still wanting to walk through a forest. If anyone's seen a good skinwalker movie, let me know. I don't promise I'll watch it, since skinwalkers are one of the few things that legitimately freak me out. The Ritual is a fun, perfectly paced horror movie that I recommend checking out. Fun fact, Andy Serkis of Motion Capture fame is one of the movie's producers. I also just realized that Luke is going to have super survivor's guilt forever. Number 6, My Bloody Valentine, 1981, directed by George Mihaka. A bunch of miners died after some supervisors left the mine early to go to a Valentine's Day dance. One miner named Harry Warden survived and enacted his revenge by killing the supervisors the next Valentine's Day. Twenty years after those events, the big Valentine's Day dance is back on. People start dying, which prompts the town to shut down all things Valentine's Day related. The youth decide to throw a secret Valentine's party at the mine. A masked killer thought to be Harry Warden starts killing people. He offs a bunch of kids and is revealed to be Axel, a guy that is part of a love triangle. He saw his dad, one of the supervisors, get murdered by Harry when he was a kid. He escapes into the mine after part of it collapses. Harry Warden, Axel, and the negligence of the police chief are the killers. A slasher movie set around Valentine's Day, where the killer is a miner who loves to use a pickaxe as his weapon of choice, sounds like a fun enough time, doesn't it? This movie is about as average as you would guess it is. It does have some interesting kills and gore in it. For example, you get to see an old lady's burn-up body pop out of a dryer. 
A girl gets her head impaled on a shower head. A boy gets his face shoved into a pot of boiling hot dogs. But this movie isn't about the killer. It's about the love triangle between Axel, TJ, and Sarah. TJ was with Sarah until he skipped town. He came back to town, but Sarah is with Axel now. TJ wants her back, though. Sarah doesn't really want to be with either of them, but ends up with TJ because he saves her life from the murderous Axel. They probably live happily ever after with a strong relationship built on the shared trauma. What? You found me rambling on about a love triangle when I should be talking about a horror movie boring? Me too. Honestly, TJ and Axel have more chemistry with each other, and I really thought that there was going to be a twist where they got together instead. The whole movie seemed to be setting up for that with their group showers and harmonica duet. I haven't seen a horror movie with this type of homoerotic undertone since A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Actually, the homoeroticism in that sequel is completely front and center. Anyway, I think a much better ending for My Bloody Valentine would have had TJ and Axel end up together after taking down the police chief, who honestly should have been the actual killer. Throughout the movie, the chief makes the dumbest decisions that would make a lot of sense if he was the killer. It ends up being obvious that he isn't due to him not being able to teleport, but still. He tells everyone to keep the fact that someone is killing people on the DL in order to avoid a panic. Gee, chief, I guess a mild panic is way worse than a bunch of dead younger people who wouldn't have thrown a secret party if they knew a maniac was on the loose. My favorite character in the movie is Hot Dog Girl. At a party, you see her just hanging out eating hot dogs. She starts off with three, then pops up later in the movie trying to get more. It's like hot dogs is all she lives for, and I respect that. The day before Valentine's Day in this movie falls on Friday, so you get kills on both Valentine's Day and Friday the 13th. It's apparent that this was trying to cash in on the slasher formula of a masked figure killing on a holiday with a specific weapon. You can see some obvious inspiration from Halloween given all of the POV shots from the killer's perspective with heavy breathing. Before watching this movie, I thought the band My Bloody Valentine was an emo band, but found out they are actually an alternative rock band that formed in Dublin in the 80s. I threw on one of their albums and didn't completely hate it. They allegedly didn't know about the Canadian slasher that they share their name with. The movie was actually shot in a mine, which is pretty cool and a great setting for a horror movie. Shooting was allegedly hell though, it took forever to get the cast and crew in and out of the mine, and due to the methane levels, they had to be extremely careful with lighting, since they only had a certain amount of lights they could use safely. A ton of the footage was cut out of this movie due to censorship, including a scene that shows Axel rip his arm off after a cave-in to get away from the police. I was wondering what happened to his arm when watching the ending without knowledge of the cuts. There would be a lot more blood in the movie if the cut material stayed in. I think blood would have helped it a lot. It has bloody in the title after all. My Bloody Valentine is your average holiday slasher. It's fun enough if you're looking for a movie to watch with your loved one on the 14th. Number 7. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, 1981 onwards, collected and retold by Alvin Schwartz and illustrated by Stephen Gamel. This book series is basically a collection of creepy folktales and urban legends. 
back in the days before you could pop on the internet and read creepypastas on some spooky wiki page, us kids had scary stories to tell in the dark. Why did we have access to these books though? What is wrong with my parents and every other kid who had access to these books as parents? I mean, I am very grateful that they allowed me to terrify myself as a kid with them. But if you have ever just even seen these books, you know it's not really the stories that do the scaring. Sure, some of these stories will stick with you, like the one where a girl's cheek becomes a surrogate for spider babies, but the truly horrifying material that these books are packed full of are the grotesque illustrations by Stephen Gamel. I swear, his art is the most disturbing art I have ever seen in my entire life, and it was used to adorn the cover and pages of these children's books. If you are not familiar with these illustrations, I implore you, search for Stephen Gamel and take a look. Once you do this, I know that you will 100% agree with me that it is absolutely insane that this guy was an illustrator for children's books. If you could enter someone's mind through a door like in the video game Psychonauts, I would make sure to never ever go near Gamel's doorway due to the immense fear of being sucked in. Okay, maybe that's a little extreme to say. I would actually be interested in hearing about the influences on his work. I think he would be the perfect person to design some new terrifying mask for a slasher movie and can't believe he hasn't already done so. Not only is the art something that will always stick with me, the stories in the books are a perfect way to introduce the younger generation to scary stories. Urban legends are a lot different these days though, so I don't know if kids would appreciate the older style of stories when they have probably already heard about silly creepypastas like Squidward Suicide, Lavender Town Syndrome, and Candle Cove. The times sure have changed. Back in my day, we'd scare each other with stories of a donkey-faced lady that would brutally murder you. Now kids are scared of video game ghosts. If you are looking for a way to get your kids into some spooky content, I highly recommend getting them the Scary Stories Treasury that contains all three books. It will scar them in a good way. I even recommend checking them out as an adult if you've never had the fear of flipping the page to read the next story and the immense dread of what you'll see on that next page. Make sure to get the version illustrated by Gamel though. There is a terrible re-release with his art replaced by another dude that basically turned the peanut butter and jelly sandwich that was the original books into just a peanut butter sandwich. I hope I didn't bring back too many traumatizing memories for the folks that held those books when they were younger. I also hope no one turned off and unsubbed from the podcast after I revealed I hadn't seen Halloween until recently and didn't love it. It doesn't really hold up. If you think I'm wrong, I'd love to hear about it though. I'm open to having my mind changed. As always, a thank you to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their site, which allows it to pop up on all your favorite podcast apps and iTunes. Check out the other shows on the network if you like movies, arguing about directors, and or sports. If you have anything you want me to know, I have an open grave policy. Just throw your dead bodies, I mean comments, right on in either on the YouTube videos, iTunes, Facebook, or my Instagram. The next episode will be out on the 25th of February. Until then, don't go into any abandoned cabins in the woods. There's nothing but trouble in those death traps.